0: Hey everyone! Welcome to Superwomen. This is Rebecca. Today's guest is Jessica Bennett. She is an award-winning journalist and the first ever gender editor of the New York Times, and is the author of two books, Feminist Fight Club, and This Is Eighteen. And she has done some incredible work on social and culture issues, from the persistence of workplace inequality to the ripple effects of Me Too. Jessica, I'm so excited to talk to you today.
1: I am so happy to be here. Thank you. So I'd love to start a
0: little bit with your backstory. Were you always a lover of writing or was it something that came to you uh, later on?
1: I was kind of one of those weird people that knew from a very young age that I wanted to tell other people's stories. I grew up in Seattle and... When I was in elementary school, the editor of the local newspaper, the Seattle Times, came and did workshops with my class. And from that moment forward, I was basically like, this is what I'm going to do, and whatever it takes, I will do it. So
0: when you set out to start writing, obviously becoming a New York Times writer and author, you have you know, something called the Overlooked Franchise, which is being adapted by Netflix. Did you ever imagine that your career would take all these beautiful sort of different offshoots of what traditional writing is sort of when you grow up, what you think about?
1: Definitely not. I mean, you know, I went to school, I went to college for journalism. And at that time, this was like early 2000s, they were still teaching students that like, if you wanted to be a journalist, you needed to move to a small town and work for a local newspaper doing like newspaper articles. And I was Basically, like I, I can't do that. I'm not doing that. I'm moving to New York, and I'm going to take my chances, and I'll get however many waitressing jobs I need to to support myself. But I want to work in magazines, and so it was through that. I mean, you know, I was lucky in a lot of ways, but I also earned it. It really opened up this whole world of like really thinking about what storytelling is and different platforms for it, and that it's not just the written word. And so all of that has been really fun to learn about and to do. So you've chosen a very
0: specific path in terms of focusing on telling women's stories, gender equality, you know, making voices that have been silenced heard. What inspired that?
1: Yeah. So it goes back to my my first real job out of school at Newsweek magazine. So I mentioned I grew up in Seattle, you know, very progressive city, progressive home. I didn't really talk about feminism or women's issues with my parents or growing up almost because it was so implied in in the place that I grew up in. And it really wasn't until my first real job out of college where I ultimately got a staff job at Newsweek magazine that suddenly I started to notice like, "Huh, I'm getting my ideas stolen and I'm not really being able to speak up in meetings and weird. I just found out that my male colleague and friend who has the same title as me is making thousands and thousands of dollars more than me. And it sort of took me a minute to be like, huh, like, is this sexism? Is this that thing that people talk about? Is this why people call themselves feminists? And so what happened was I started talking with other young women who were my colleagues and realizing that they shared a lot of the same concerns. And We then learned that at Newsweek, the place where we were all working, and it was most of our first real staff jobs, there had been a lawsuit in the 1970s where the women of Newsweek, 46 of them, had sued the company for gender discrimination in what was the first lawsuit of its kind. And those women had essentially paved the way for us, in a lot of ways, to work at Newsweek, to be writers at Newsweek. And in their day, you know, you were told, well, women can't be writers here. You can be a researcher, you can go fetch the coffee, but we will never put your name on a story. You're going to turn over all of your notes and probably that cup of coffee to a man for whom you work. Maybe year this? Take- <laughs> this is 1970s.
0: Okay. So it sounds like 1950s.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, not that far off, but like, a time when women were entering the workforce but actually before it was even illegal to separate job listings by gender so it would be like woman wanted for secretary position man wanted for reporter job and so you know like hr would say this to the women who were hired in these jobs like you you're, you can't be a writer here women can't be writers here and they sued And so fast forward, you know, 40 years later, we're like these entitled young people who have excelled in all aspects of our schooling and been led to believe we can do and accomplish everything and anything we set our minds to. And we're butting up against some of these same issues, albeit they are more subtle now. No one would say that we can't be writers. They would just like, you know, steal our idea and give it to someone else. And it would appear on the pages of the news, of the magazine under a man's byline. So this group of young women started banding together at the company, and we learned the story of these women who had come before us. And we essentially decided we needed to work together to advocate for ourselves. And because we were journalists, you know, that was what we knew. So we started reporting this story out. We went and found those women. We wanted to tell their stories. And the anniversary of their lawsuit was coming up. So we felt like we could actually publish a piece that that looked at what had happened and how much or how little had changed. And for me, that was really, you know, what second wave feminists would call a click moment. <laughs> it was the moment where I was like, oh, wow, Okay. This all makes sense. This is what I am meant to be doing, and from that point forward, I began bringing this kind of feminist lens to most of my work.
0: When I was born, they didn't know I was going to be a girl. Uh, I had older brothers, and my mom. Her first thought was like, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta teach her to be a fighter and to be tough." And that was a mentality that she raised me with. And so I feel like you know I was equipped. I guess, with that sort of upbringing that the gender dynamics within my household never even occurred to me similar to like what you found until you went to work. Mm -hmm. And when I meet a lot of these women who, whether it is a disparity in pay or sexual harassment, or, you know, being treated like, again, oh, are you here to be the assistant? No, I'm the one you're going to invest in all these stories. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes women sticking their neck out and it's not comfortable. When you're in those situations, to say you're not gonna treat me like this, or writing an op-ed, or whatever it is. And sometimes I, I see these women's faces and they sort of go, Oh, I could never do that. But I say, Listen, I know this is an extreme example, but it wasn't comfortable for Rosa Parks to sit in the seat, okay? But she did it and it paved the way for you know equality for black people. So how do you, with all of your, you know, learnings and speaking all over the world and all of the incredible people you've met, how do you find a way to get women to feel that power and to feel that I'm going to, I'm going to say, no, this is not going to happen to me or like you, you may change.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's power in numbers. And for me, that's been a real theme throughout the course of my life and, and, and my career. I was feeling this way when I was the young reporter at Newsweek, but also these other women were feeling this way. And we started gathering and meeting and we would literally meet up in the ladies' bathroom where all good revolutions begin. (laughs) And we would plot and we would talk about how we were going to confront this issue. But I say often, like, There is no thing more powerful than an army of strong women. (laughs) Like a strong woman is powerful, yes, but if you have an army of them, there is a group and a group is harder to take down and a group is harder to ignore. And you see this in things from advocating for equal pay to sexual harassment and the way that in the Me Too movement, women spoke up together So I really try to encourage women to find their community or find their squad or find their feminist fight club, whatever you want to call it, because you are not alone. Probably what you're experiencing is not only individual, it is systemic, it is collective, it is institutional, and it is much easier to speak up about a problem if you have other people who have your back.
0: I love that. I think that's really important. What would you say, you know, I felt for a long time, and one of the reasons why I started the Female Founder Collective is I felt like we were in our own echo chamber talking about the wage gap, talking mm-hmm. about the treatment, the lack of equality across the board. But then I was like, this isn't doing anything. We're all just talking a right. lot, but no, nothing's actually changing much, you know? Right. What do you see as a, as a need or change that people can also, as a group, get together and, and fight for?
1: Well, I think it's a really interesting question about collectives and and sort of safe spaces or women-only spaces that have been a real comfort and source of empowerment in a lot of ways like you describe. But exactly as you said, if you're only talking to each other, are you actually advocating change? And so for me, this has been sort of an interesting paradox throughout my career because I have focused on these subjects and these issues, but I have always tried to do so within sort of the old school mainstream institutions. So like the New York Times until recently did not have a gender editor. There were many women's magazines or websites like Jezebel or Bustle. Like there's so many places that are really focused on women's issues by women for women. But I always had this sort of unquenchable <laughs> Urge to bring that change within the larger institutions. And at times it was a lot harder because they weren't thinking about these issues and they were having to figure out, you know, how to activate and how to engage women readers who are a minority of their readership, which we knew. And so I guess for me, it's been about bringing change into the spaces that are not necessarily safe. I sort of hate the term safe space anyway, because nothing's really a safe space, but the spaces that may feel a little scarier or haven't traditionally been for women and trying to acknowledge that there is a correction to be made there and that there is progress to be made within those.
0: What do you recommend if a woman wants to take that next step? but she she happens to be one of the only one, like one of the only C-suite executives. Like, How do you recommend that these women do find the group that can
1: then be more powerful, but they're like,
0: yeah, I want my group, but I'm the only one here. <laughs> I'm the only right, one in the right,
1: room. Right. I mean, I think that you have to see who's around you and who can help you advocate. Like <laughs> men can often be really helpful in these scenarios. And especially if you're the only woman in the room, it's not that women should have to rely on men to speak up on their behalf, but it can be really helpful at times. And there have been some male colleagues who have been among the most advocating and helpful throughout my career. So I think you look at who's around you, you talk to people in other industries, you don't necessarily have to always gather with with people in your own group. And and you think about the ways that bringing more women into the fore changes the dynamic. I mean, you of course know this better than than anyone. But when there is when you are the only in a room, whether it is based on your skin color or your gender identity or your sexuality, there is more attention paid to you. There's both simultaneously more attention and less attention. Anything you do will be scrutinized. But at the same time, it is harder to have your voice heard. And there is all sorts of research that backs up that just having a third of the room actually makes women or minorities and whatever the case may be more likely to be listened to and heard. So we've heard this in different contexts, but like even the women of the Obama White House, there was this famous story about how they weren't being heard in meetings. And so they would like grab each other and drag them into meetings with them so that they had someone to back up their ideas. And so that they felt like their voices would be heard and their ideas would be heard. And so that to me was such an interesting idea that you could simply just like bring a physical body (laughs) that you knew was going to have your back into a room and, and be more likely to have your ideas heard. So I think there are different ways, you know, sometimes you have to seek these spaces out, and you have to seek out and try to understand who the allies are, because, you know, not everyone is one. And it doesn't mean that just because there is another woman, she's definitely going to have your back, you have to, you know, take into account the situation, you have to scrutinize the person's values. But I think there are more allies than we tend to think.
0: I'm going to shout that note far and wide because I do agree with you. It, it definitely changes when there's when there's other women in the room or other other people that do not look like you, that, that changes the dynamics for sure. Um, I'd love to dive into your books. Which one did you write first? This is 18 or Feminist Fight Club?
1: Feminist Fight Club. And I was mentioning, I was sort of describing the colleagues that I began gathering with at Newsweek when we learned about that lawsuit and how we were meeting up in the ladies' bathroom, and then later, you know, over too many drinks. But that was, in a way, the formation of my real-life feminist fight club, which was a group of women that I have been gathering with for over a decade now, since I began my career, really that I would get together with once a month. And we would essentially talk about our jobs and things we were struggling with and, and how we could help one another. And we joked that it was like a feminist fight club because we didn't talk about the group outside of the group. And it became the inspiration for the book. So you you already
0: mentioned before getting a group, getting you know a team behind you if you are fighting for something. So what are some of the other like golden nuggets that come from the book, but also your time in, in spending time with all these women and having this incredible tight bond with these women.
1: Yeah. I mean, like it sounds corny, but having a squad to cheer you on or just to like tell you, you don't suck for me, has been incredibly helpful throughout the course of my career. You know, I'm a writer. I often work independently. We're in a pandemic now. Like, we're all so isolated. It is very easy to get stuck inside your own head and think that you don't deserve the things that you should or you are not worth as much as you should be. And so having this group of women or whomever is, you know, in your group be there to be like, no, actually... (laughs) Like, you need to see yourself the way we see you, not the way your inner self sees you has been so, so helpful. And then the other thing is, you know, I've always really relied on data, like as a journalist, I'm always interviewing experts, I have been trained to not rely on opinion. So I'm always trying to find a study to back up every statement I make. And so What I was trying to do with this book was provide tools for women who may be starting their careers or hadn't thought much about the gender dynamics in their workplace before, that we knew based on academic research and data could be successful. Like, these aren't my opinions. This is rooted in fact. And, and I learned that a lot from my own feminist fight clip too, because they would always like show up to our meetings with a new study about how you can make your voice better heard in a meeting or comps for negotiations and hand them out to the rest of us so that we had something to root whatever we might have been asking for in.
0: I always love studies because they, they back up and they can very quickly shut up anyone who might want to open their mouth and disagree with you. <laughs>
1: Exactly. I, I call it verbal karate because it's like you can't argue with it and you can't call me emotional. Like this isn't rooted in emotion. Like this is backed by data. And so like I've often joked that like sliding the study under your boss's door about how like women are less likely to advocate for themselves or how many times women are interrupted in meetings versus men or whatever could be sort of a funny way to call it attention to it and not make it personal. It's not personal. It's, you know, this is societal and it's proven Harvard business review or whatever said so.
0: Yeah. So outside of, so first women are going to read your book, feminist fight club, and then they're going to start their own. And is there a way that they can connect back to you back to, you know, a larger, the larger movement if they, if they want?
1: Yeah, it's been really cool to see. So my book came out in 2016, like right before the presidential election, which was its own thing. We went into this thinking that Hillary Clinton was going to be president, suddenly it was Trump. And it was like all the things that I wrote about in the book were suddenly coming true, but it wasn't subtle sexism. It was like overt. But it's been really cool to see over the course of the last few years, these groups sprout up all over the country and all over the world. Like there was a group of young women in in New York who formed a literal feminist fight club. They are in a boxing club and they also talk about self-advocacy and they go to practice and it's teen girls and it focuses on those living in minority communities. There are feminist fight clubs on campus there's one in Paris that I have met with. Um, it's just it's amazing. And some people call themselves Feminist Fight Clubs, other people just form these groups. On on my website, feministfightclub.com, there's a guide you can download for like how to start your own club and and for activities, or if you want to do a, a book club around reading, reading the book and practicing some of these tactics that you can do that but it's just I mean a lot of us have these groups we call them different things they're groups of women or groups of larger people and they they advocate for each other my friend Amina so has this term called a pbod it's a personal board of directors and that's like the squad that you go to when you're making a big career decision and you need your personal board of directors to weigh in on it that's a form of a feminist club too
0: I definitely love the idea of these clubs popping up all over the world, just because I know that so much power can come from that community. And we have that with the Female Founder Collective. So I think that's incredible. I know I asked you a lot about your book, but personally, I'm fascinated by how much you managed to do between all the projects you have going, all the speaking engagement you do. So outside not COVID notwithstanding because it's a lot easier to do a lot now when we don't have to travel. How do you manage to be so prolific? What are your productivity tips? Any anything there because you do a lot.
1: It's so funny because I'm like I don't do anything. <laughs> so I think my number one tip is like I constantly have to get over my imposter syndrome and I notice it especially Uh, when I'm isolated. And so this past year, we've, of course, all been really isolated, and we're not having the communities and the groups and the coffees and the networking that we normally do. And it's easy to forget your worth. And so for me, being a freelance writer, being a writer who is often working alone, one of the biggest challenges is getting over my own self-doubt on a daily basis to remind myself that I have work to do (laughs) and need to get it done. So that's not exactly a productivity tip. I probably need your productivity tips, but I've always been pretty self-driven, but I tend to struggle with self-doubt a lot. And it's such an individual thing when you're a writer and you are only thinking about ideas that are in your head and you don't always have an editor to talk to and you have to get yourself out of your own head in order to be able to get things down on the page and so you know I have different self-care routines and exercises and antidepressants and everything else that I use to do that but that's one of the big ones for me. (laughs)
0: Okay, everyone, before we jump back into this week's episode, I want to take a second to remind you that my new book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage and Success is available for pre-order right now. I am so excited to share this with you. It is my journey of the last 15 years where I had to break the rules, throw them out, rewrite them to achieve success. And I'm sharing this all with you. If you love this podcast, you will love this book. You're going to learn how to take on new challenges, overcome fear, and break barriers in order to reach your goals. You can pre-order it wherever books are sold, and if you email your receipt to fearless at you get the cost of the book as a credit on my site. So it's a win-win. So what are you going to do? Pre-order my book now, Fearless, wherever books are sold. So before we go, we'd love to also ask you about your other book, This Is 18, and talk about the impact that's had on young girls.
1: Yeah. So This Is 18 is a project that began as a as like a digital zine in the New York Times. The New York Times is like not a place that would put out a zine <laughs> normally. It took a lot of internal cajoling. But the idea was to showcase the lives of 18-year-old girls around the world and normally the way that we would do that is we would you know, hire a bunch of professional photojournalists to go find these young women and, and document them. But part of what we were trying to get at with this project was the way that teen girls don't often see themselves reflected. Or if they do see themselves reflected in media, it's not necessarily authentic. Girls are more likely to be sexualized. This is a really pivotal age where self-esteem tends to drop. There are many countries in which 18-year-old girls are likely to be married or have children. And so it was kind of this tension of wanting to showcase this really pivotal moment in a girl's life, this kind of rite of passage, but also wanting to showcase it through the lens of other girls. So what we did is we found other teen girl photographers <laughs> all over the world And we asked them to shoot the photos and do the interviews with the other teen girls. And so it was released as a big digital project, and then it became a book, and then it became a traveling exhibit. And the idea was to really showcase girls' lives through girls' eyes, because that is still a rarity. And I think media is getting a lot better. But there were things that having young women photographers interview these girls Got at that I don't think would have happened were it just us as adults going in and and trying to to connect. And so this was a project that I edited and, and worked with all of these young women, and they were just such an inspiration and so creative and so different from one another, but also had so many similarities in the things that they care about, their commitment to social justice, and caring about climate change, but also really kind of sweet things like we asked them who they most likely go to for advice. And my, a lot of them said they're moms. <laughs> so it was, it was really sort of a meant to be a, a window into what life is like for, for teenage girls in many different countries.
0: So one thing I wanted to just emphasize, you know, when, when people hear the word First ever gender editor at the New York Times. They probably hear the New York Times, but they don't realize the impact of what a gender editor is and does. Do you mind just bragging about that for a quick <laughs> sure. before we before we wrap?
1: Yeah. So I get asked what is a gender editor a lot, and I eventually started joking that it's like a regular editor but angrier. <laughs> but the idea behind it is that you know when I came in, this I, I took this job and. 2017. And it was right as the Me Too movement was exploding. And you know, the New York Times, I sort of touched on this before, but it was a newspaper that was traditionally run by white men. And it was targeted at white men. Those were the people who were consuming newspapers and they held the wealth. And as progressive as the world has become in some ways, there's still some catching up to do. And so when I came on, part of it was You know, they needed an editor on staff who was thinking about a gender angle on everyday stories. And, you know, Me Too, of course, was a a huge example of that. But it was also thinking about ways that we could better engage women readers, because at the time, we knew that there was a gender gap in the readership. And like, as you know, (laughs) you can't be a thriving business today uh, if you are not reaching 51% of the population. (laughs) So we really needed to think about ways to close that gap and so, you know, my job on a day-to-day basis meant many different things. It was thinking of creative ways we could better engage women readers. It was weighing in on stories. It was thinking about, you know, live events, which of course we no longer do. And it was writing and it was editing and it was a, a bit of a, a mix of all of these things. But I always said that, you know, a gender editor should actually not have to exist. Like This was kind of a corrective measure in a lot of ways and a rebalancing measure in the same way that a race editor should not have to exist. But I was always very encouraged by the fact that the institution was acknowledging that they needed a little help in this area and was willing to talk about it publicly.
0: I think it's incredible. And I think it's making uh, a difference that people aren't even aware of on a conscious level but to right. know that that readers are being hit with things that are just more fairly balanced, stories are covered differently. You know, I mean, I think it it seeps in in a way that hopefully systemically makes changes that are, that are for the better in the long run. So I think it's incredible you're there and the work you do is amazing.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And you really touched on it. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's not meant to be something that's seen you know, we didn't, we purposely did not want to create a new section of the newspaper called the gender section. Like we didn't want to recreate the 1950s women's pages when like all of the women's news would be off in its own section. So it's the type of thing that exists throughout the newspaper and throughout the institution. And you probably don't see it overtly, but overall it, it adds up in, in story subjects and sources and photography and a little bit of everything.
0: So I usually ask this to all my guests. What is one piece of advice that you would love to pass on that either you learned the hard way or someone gave you and it proved fruitful?
1: I think it would be to trust your gut. There, I mean, this is a theme for me, the, the self-doubt, but there have been so many times and so long throughout the course of my career where I have not trusted my initial first instinct and then either found out the hard way that I was right or had to go through some whole prolonged process to get back to where I was <laughs> in the very beginning. And it I think was only later in thinking really deeply about it that I started to realize that like we do that like a gut instinct is a real thing and you can feel it inside yourself. And so trying to tap into what that is and acknowledge it and not necessarily brush it aside, you know, I mentioned before like I'm evidence-based. I like to have research to back up things that I do, but your gut instinct can be really powerful and is often right.
0: I love that, and people will roll their eyes because I think I repeat it a lot, but <laughs> your gut produces 90 percent, and I think you know this because you like evidence, but ninety percent of the serotonin or some of the, the major hormones that people think uh, are in your brain are actually made in your gut. Oh, so there's I I didn't even know that.
1: that. Oh, Amazing.
0: Yes. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole evolution and field of people going, "Oh, it's you know, what's wrong with my gut? Maybe that's why I'm tired, depressed, cranky, right. hormonal, whatever." Because we're eating such shitty, pesticide right. foods that weakens it, and then it can't do its job. So, right, right. I think further drills down the. I'll send you all my researches, but Love it. Um, drills down the gut. It is there for a reason. It is another brain for a
1: reason. I love that. Okay. So I'm going to start thinking of it as my brain, my second brain.
0: Your second brain. Last question. What would we be surprised to know about you?
1: (laughs) Oh, let's see. That's a good one. I guess maybe, you know, it it was not until my early 20s in my first real job that I I began to think that maybe I wanted to focus on women and, and gender issues. But there was... This event that occurred in my middle school in Seattle, um, where a boy was suspended for wearing a skirt over his pants in the school. And so I, with a bunch of other people, organized a protest that we called Skirt Fest. (laughs) And this was like 90s Seattle, so you can imagine. And we got the local high school involved and the local newspaper covered it. And we basically marched outside our middle school campus and everyone wore skirts. And we had these little picket signs that were like, anyone can wear a skirt. And so I didn't even remember that for years. But maybe that was this kind of budding sign of my interest in these types of issues.
0: I love it. It started early.
1: <laughs> started early, exactly. Exactly.
0: Jessica, thank you so much for being on today and for what you do. And people, I'm assuming, can get the books wherever books are sold.
1: Yep, they can. Thank you so much. This is really fun.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom Macy's scentbirds and birch boxes as well as our site.